I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, Akira. I was a late convert to the world of Japanese manga and anime, so when the first trickle of dubbed VHS copies of Fist of the North Star and translated paperbacks of Ghost in the Shell appeared in the hands of my peers in the mid-90s, they largely flew under my radar. Comic books have always been, by far, my favorite entertainment medium, but for most of my life, when I heard the term comic book, it was synonymous with American superheroes. After high school ended for me in the late 90s, I discovered that comics could be so much more than that. I was introduced to titles like Garth Ennis's Preacher, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and Jeff Smith's Bone, and a world of possibilities opened up for me with this medium, and I was eager to try more. It was then that I first encountered Katsuhiro Otomo's landmark 2,000-page manga epic, Akira. Originally serialized in Young Magazine between 1982 and 1990, Akira is an apocalyptic cyberpunk saga set in the glittering dystopian city of Neo-Tokyo. Built on an artificial island in Tokyo Bay after its predecessor was destroyed in a massive explosion that instigated World War III, Neo-Tokyo is a crowded metropolis of both shining Elysian towers and dingy crime-ridden highways menaced by violent youth motorcycle gangs. It's the story of two juvenile delinquents, Kaneda and Tetsuo, whose friendship, and eventually the city itself, are torn apart when godlike psychic powers awaken in Tetsuo after a chance encounter on an abandoned highway in the old city. They are plunged into a world of secret government programs, anti-government terrorism, drug abuse, orbital death satellites, stomach-turning body horror, military coups, disaffected youth, doomsday cults, and more mass destruction than even Michael Bay or Roland Emmerich could handle. And at the heart of all of it is a secret and destructive psychic child named Akira. Otomo's epic reads like a relentlessly kinetic and exciting blend of the best elements of Blade Runner, Scanners, The Warriors, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and the comics work of European artist Mobius. I was only vaguely aware of this series at the time, and then only by reputation. I knew it involved something about really cool-looking motorcycles, graphic violence, motion lines, large spherical explosions, and characters yelling each other's names. What I didn't appreciate at the time was how much of a watershed moment that both the manga series and the 1988 animated film it inspired truly were. Not only for Japanese comics and film, but for popular culture all over the world. And where American exposure to Japanese pop culture had been limited to dubbed imports of Speed Racer and Gigantor, Akira made non-Japanese audiences take notice and created a hunger for Japanese comics and animation that only grew going into the 1990s and hasn't subsided yet. And at the tip of that spear was Akira. 
You can see its fingerprints on everything from The Matrix to Final Fantasies 6 and 7, from Stranger Things to the Fallout series, from Looper to Scott Pilgrim, from Midnight Special to Dragon Ball Z. Not bad at all for a property that both Steven Spielberg and George Lucas had previously written off as unmarketable in the United States. Let's meet the panel. He's appearing for the first time on one of our panels. He's one of the hosts of the View from the Gutters comic book podcast. Welcome to the show, Mr. Tobiah Panchin. Thank you for having me. And a returning panelist and friend of the show. He's also a host of the View from the Gutters podcast, Mr. Joe Preddy. What up? And finally, the Tetsuo to my Canada, the Ryu to my Mr. Nezu, Mr. Casey Doran. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Great to have you here, Casey. I just want to let you know that it's it's it's, it's Radio versus the Martians versus View from the Gutters, so it's like Radio versus the Gutters, I think. <laughs> it's eating it its own tail. Yes. <laughs> it's two versus two here. It's going to get Tag pulled, team. pulled into a dimension of mind and space. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's going to get it's going to get crazy. It's yeah. going to get all abstract up in here. <laughs> uh, as long as nobody ender, ends up getting piledrived off the top of the steel cage, yeah. I'll be okay. That's fine. <laughs> no promises. We're fine. No promises. <laughs> and uh, Tobias, I do want to start with you but i want to open this question to everybody um so to buy you have a longer history with manga than i do um and akira is probably one of the first japanese comics that really broke through in the united states um where did you first encounter akira and do you remember what your initial reaction to it was i would say that my first encounter with akira was probably I want to say around 91 or 92. I was probably 9 or 10. Um, And as I've mentioned on View from the Gutters many times, my father is a science fiction writer. And so I grew up going to science fiction conventions and getting exposed to a lot of stuff coming over from Japan, I think a lot earlier than many people did. Um, And so I was catching like Akira raw, no dub, no subtitles, and just being absolutely wowed by the visuals of the animation i didn't actually read the manga until about 2015 oh wow wow. yeah Mm -hmm. so i read it for the first time when we talked about it on view from the gutters and so it was kind of like me catching up with something that i had felt the reverberations of throughout my life because as, as you mentioned at the top of the show this is incredibly incredibly influential and i think one of the biggest influencers influencees influencees uh, that you didn't mention is batman oh really yeah and two works in particular that i want to call out uh the batman arc no man's land owes a substantial debt to this work i can see that as does the entirety of the tv series batman beyond which lifts heavily from this work up to and including the capstone film of Batman Beyond, uh, The Return of the Joker, which heavily features an orbital death laser that's uh-huh. used repeatedly. Interesting. Absolutely an echoing of the Saul laser from this series. Oh, wow. So, hmm. Joe, where did you first encounter Akira? Well, so I was I was an anime... I got into anime in the 90s also, and I I think it was because... I'm trying to remember. It was on cable. Like there was um, heavily edited. Would, I imagine. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But then we had, and I think every every place had a, 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 a an analog to this. We had a, a store called Hastings in Albuquerque, and it was books, movies, and music. And Hastings had a pretty robust anime section for 
it being at that time incredibly expensive to get in and only a handful of movies there actually were. And they were all shit like, I mean, Akira was there, but Fist of the North Star, the, the, the movie, not the, not the OAV or the, uh, the series, but shit like Demon City Sinjuku and Wicked City and like all this really crazy, super violent shit that like, I can't believe, like, I think, I don't think my parents had any idea what we were watching. <laughs> yeah, back then it was just a sense of, oh, it's a cartoon, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I always it so knew, wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, and my parents weren't really all that, like, pr- uh, prude about, about it, but... I I still look back and I'm like, yeah, no, I should <laughs> not have been. Is it really any surprise that sex and hyperviolence led the way? Yeah, oh, right. No. <laughs> it always does. It's it's like peace and love, but totally not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, and so I was I was this is actually my first time reading the manga. Really, it's largely me because um, I never made that leap into manga. Like anime has been something that is kind of been in my life for you know 25 probably yeah like at least 25 years but manga was always something i found there always seemed to be this kind of barrier to entry where and it was it was mostly me just kind of like oh you read it you know um uh, left to or right to left and mm. it was like now i've read more manga and i'm like well that's ridiculous there's right. there's definitely more kinetic manga but I think I still kind of carry that around with me where it's like, well, I don't I get lost very easily if it's too kinetic. But I'm realizing now that's just kind of me holding myself back. Hmm. But, yeah, it was it was interesting because I went into it only having seen the movie and I've seen the movie many times. But um, that's yeah, it's it it almost feels like I, I have completed this journey that I've been on for quite a while. Finally, at, at the other end of that. So, yeah. Casey, uh, where did you first find Akira? Uh, I watched the movie. I think it was the Streamline Pictures dub of this movie. And the thing I remember about the dub is that I think the guy who plays Raphael's voice, in Leonardo, the, or Leonardo's voice, is one of the voices of one of the uh, the gang or the the gang. Um, I saw that and. I think I had tried and failed to actually start the manga a few times over the intervening, you know, 20 years or so. I was probably like 12 or something when I saw Akira. Um, I don't know. I'm I, For manga, I'm like a Christmas and Easter Catholic, you know? <laughs> I've only really read Akira and Ghost in the Shell in manga form, which makes me not quite pious enough, but just enough to be part of the congregation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not particularly an expert, but this is my first time all the way through with Akira, um, so uh, just like you guys is that we're heard about it for a long time and never actually barreled through the whole thing until now. I'm kind of in the, the similar place where, um, but I'm kind of a weird person where I saw the manga first. I was aware of the anime and the anime, it was one of the first things that sort of entered my, my consciousness. But again, I was a couple degrees separated from it where when I was in high school, there were people who were really, really into Japanese animation and those people were really into, but they were never my friends. They were never the people that would lend those VHSs to me to terrify my mom. <laughs> um, I was just aware that there was a lot of, of movies out there from Japan, which were beautifully animated, and they had a lot of really cool people with spiky hair screaming, yeah. and occasionally someone would just get garroted and cut in half, and crazy shit would happen in them. 
But there was nothing about it that ever really pulled me into it. And I think it's kind of interesting how kind of nerd culture worked is that I think it was much more segregated then than it is now. Oh, absolutely. Especially in the 90s, anime was just not generally available. There Mm. were fan sub groups that were operating online, which you had to track down and then send them a mail order form through the mail along with a check. Yeah. And they would hand dub you a few illegal bootleg copies on VHS and send them to you. That's awesome. It's something that my brother did a lot at the time. And I remember there was one fan sub group in particular because they had gotten a lot of remaindered Barney VHS tapes that were Barney purple. And so they were very recognizable when he would get these in the mail and they were these purple VHS tapes. And I was like, oh, he's got more anime. Oh, that's crazy. It's weird because I, I think at the time, the people who were like, again, were into anime had to be really into it. It's like Project Mayhem. You had to show a level right. of commitment. Before yeah. you well, could, yeah. well, I mean, there's a, I mean, think about the, the of the barrier to entry. Uh, I mean, I always loved animated movies, so any animated movie, especially one that was supposed to be for adults, was always so... I I loved heavy metal when I saw like a little bit that I think my brother had taped from someone else. Um, The barrier to entry for animation, for for Japanese animation, was, of course, the subtitle part. Right. Um, And when I saw... When I went and watched Akira again this time, I actually made sure to watch it with the... Um, with an English dub on because I wanted to watch the visuals mm-hmm. because one thing that you don't re- you don't realize in a you know in a in a foreign movie like if you watch a German movie or something and it's a drama um, it's okay if your eyes sort of shift down and re- read and then your eyes back up but for an animation where you want to drink in every movement of every frame and this is the incredible part about this movie is. It is one of them. It is probably the most well animated, and that and that I mean everything on this on the screen that uh, should be moving, that should have some energy to it, should have some life to it, is moving in a way that's interesting. There are very few cycled frames. There are very few times when they have a you know a frozen face where there's no change in the face on a static background, which happens a lot in in anime in anime and animation in general. They just spent an enormous amount of time making every frame you know flowing and beautiful and to to me that's what stood out about it is that it was not only this amazing crazy concept about you know kids exploding things with their psychic powers you know but it was also just like the richness of everything on the screen just blew anything away that i'd seen that seen since then then and since i think yeah and at the same time uh, from the manga standpoint this was the one of first uh books that had actually been from japan the manga that had been translated in its entirety and that was all in, and due to, I think, R.G. Goodman was the guy running Epic for Marvel at the time. I forget mm. the editor, but that was a risk at the time because it, you just didn't take comics from other countries and trend them. But that was the thing Epic did. They got stuff from Mobius into English for the first time. Things like Gru and ElfQuest, which were American self-published comics, got a bigger audience through Epic than they ever did. Yeah, it's kind of easy to forget that there was a legit underground comics community in the United States in the 60s and the 70s that doesn't exist anymore because those concepts and those creators have become a much more mainstream. But there was a long period of time where you had self-published or fan-created comics that were kind of distributed through word of mouth, through head shops and record shops and comic stores when they existed, which was only really in the eighties going forward after the creation of the direct market. And so with the changing landscape of comics and 
comic book stores becoming much more of a thing in the 80s, the creation of something like Epic Comics was really a bold move. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy that it that it happened at all, but again, we've like I mentioned, we've had that trickle of of Japanese pop culture into American pop culture, and it happened for decades. Like Speed Racer was like the 60s. And other things had sort of mixed in slowly, but it was Akira that was the thing that broke through and yeah. and created a hunger for more of this stuff that it was the first one in and everything followed in its wake. So you wouldn't have things like, you know, Vampire Hunter D or Ghost in the Shell without it. So we may have already answered this question a bit. So mm. what was it about Akira, the movie and the manga, that made it the breakthrough title? Oh, uh, it's it's scale. I mean, yeah. that's what it was for me, right? Like, in American comics, Superman punches somebody through a building. In fucking Akira, they're picking up buildings and hitting it. It's like, <laughs> the sense of scale in, in anime and manga has always been the thing that blows my mind the most. And there, it's like, it, it's just, the stakes um, uh, are always so much bigger, and the characters are always so much bigger, and the power sets are always so, hmm. so much bigger. And I just don't see how that could not be compelling, especially if you grew up watching, you know, 80s kids' Saturday morning cartoons yeah. where it was like, oh, we're going to play with our imaginations. It's like, oh, I got a cartoon for you. Check this shit out. <laughs> Look right? what Tetsuo can do with yeah, his imagination. Right? Like, this guy's going to fucking make people's heads explode using only his mind. Yeah. Check that shit. And like, I, I just, I think the visuals, the visuals in the anime are really striking. And I think it's just the design, the design work in that. Just the, like the bikes and the buildings. Right. Uh, I, I think I agree with you far more on your second point than your first. Although I, I do agree that the scale is an important aspect. I really think it's the style that makes this work. Uh, you can find a compilation on YouTube. Okay, so in the anime, there's this scene where at the very beginning, uh, Tetsuo wipes out on his bike because he's trying not to hit Takeshi. And Kaneda turns sideways and screeches to a halt. It's mm -hmm. this iconic shot. Yep. That has been ripped off by everyone everywhere for 25 years. And if you go on YouTube, you can find a compilation of every time <laughs> that exact shot has been ripped yeah. off from, you know, a Batman the Animated Series. There's a, uh, an early episode where Robin is trying to track down his parents' killer, and he does that exact sideways screech to a halt shot. There's a Pokemon one on there, too. <laughs> yeah, the, the, <laughs> the design of Tetsuo after Akira blows up Neo Tokyo for a second time, where he's shirtless, and he's got the tattered cape, and he's got the robot arm, and the like the giant hair. Yeah. Again, this is a style that everybody has been ripping off ever Able. since. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Uh, something stuck in my throat Like, there. just the way that the series looks, and the way that the characters move, the the... What I uh, what I termed in my notes the giant melty writhing flesh effect. Yeah, oh my god! That everybody was like, "Oh, I got to do that." There is some body horror in this book. Oh, absolutely! But just the way that this series looks, I think wowed an entire generation of artists, and they're like, "Oh my god, I have to steal everything in this book." I mean, manga is a different medium after this came out and american Absolutely. comics are a different medium mm -hmm. yeah. like so i so i want to make that point is so i think our probably were our first exposures to these most of us was seeing the movie and seeing the movie sort of seeing these characters and these scenarios play out in 
rich 24 frames a second. Um, however, when when you go through and you, you look at the manga, you realize something different, which is, of course, it's the same story, more or less, the same characters, pretty much with some more. Obviously, you have longer to tell it. But the richness of each panel, the detail that Otomo puts into the landscapes and the buildings and the rubble... Um, and the the kinetics of which he sort of puts into the characters as because there's a, there's a lot of like running around on bikes there's a lot of battles there's a lot of shooting things there's a lot of panels where there's lots of you know crazy lines which is in I guess shorthand for I'm moving really fast mm, there's speed there, lines right exactly there's there is so much rich visual detail and when you think that it's like three th- or two thousand pages or something right of a and over what eight years or something, nearly a decade's worth of work, like the sh- simply the scale of the of the drawing of of putting it down on paper, let alone the story, which I think I don't. I mean, we could we should talk about whether or not how how much the story stands up. I just started trying to trying to draw after having not picked up a really paper and a pen for the last ten years and doing it once every day, and I look at a single panel. That has a cityscape that has, you know, a couple different buildings in the top with those just perfect lines, those perfect lines. Um, And there's so much detail in one out of seven panels in a frame. And I think this guy is amazing. It's his his virtuosity in his in his uh, his drawing work is is apparent in every single image. Yeah, it's a it's a book that does not cut corners. And I think what what kind of gets me, too, is it's not just the scale, but it's the execution of that scale. Because uh, comic books have been doing the the scale for a long time. Like you mentioned Superman. Superman would like throw a chain around a planet and tow it through space. Right. And the way they'd usually draw that is Superman's in the front of the screen and the planet's in the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way Akira would have drawn that is Superman is a speck. Yeah. And the planet is huge. It would It would basically, instead of emphasizing Superman, it emphasizes the things around Superman. So when when Tetsuo uh, crashes trying not to hit Takashi, because he's like, hits a force field, what they do is they pull back from that. And you see the explosion is the thing that's emphasized to go, holy shit. Yeah. And you you see that little figure that's holding back this big thing. And those moments are usually pretty interesting for that reason. And it usually will have the freedom to pull back to let you know how big a thing or how big the impact of a thing truly is. People use psychic powers, and it's not just about that person, but it's about the impact on their surroundings that someone will get picked up and you see like bits of them sort of start to flake off like their clothing and cracks start forming in the walls around them. And it's just like, holy shit. And it's not often, I mean, I'm as desensitized to big comic book action as a human being possibly could. I've been, you know, weaned on this stuff since I was a child. And there are moments of people using superpowers in this book that make me just, my jaw drops. Well, and I think the level of detail absolutely helps with that because it makes it feel much more real. Like there are scenes at the end when they're walking through, what are they calling it? The new Tokyo Empire (laughs) Like Akira's little area and that just half flooded, broken. Yeah, and just you see these buildings, you see this all this rubble, and it's all there's no half, there's no like, there's no cut corners there. Like every right. pile of rubble, every building, every window frame, like that shit. I mean, God, Dave Sims tried to do that with Cerebus for like I think maybe most of the first arc and then brought in somebody just to do backgrounds because that level of detail 
is incredibly difficult. It sounds like it broke Dave Sim. <laughs> yeah, like, well, I mean, that was an ongoing process, but um, I think Dave Sim largely broke Dave Sim, but, uh, like, it's incredibly difficult and time-consuming to convey that much detail, and this the book is so lovingly rendered, and that detail is never spared. Like, if you look at Tetsuo's arm, like, that's a great example. There are planet panels in that book where he could have just been like, eh, whatever, but he never does. Yeah. And it, it just makes everything feel that much more. That, that amount of, like, care comes through, and I think it gives the story an impact it wouldn't have had had it been kind of more slapdash. It's funny because I think that, that early on I felt like with Japanese manga and Japanese animation, I always felt like um, there's the sort of way to do things more economical is to have, you know, simple, you know, frames with not much in a face and not much, you know, the fact that it was a it was a medium that cut a lot of corners. Now, thinking back on it now, Hanna-Barbera cut a lot of corners. Oh. <laughs> they made their cartoons. Hanna-Barbera was a circle. It yeah. had no corners. <laughs> but but uh, you you really do. It, it does make you appreciate the uh, it does make you appreciate sort of this as the peak, the pinnacle of that age of it, where um, where no expense was being spared. Everything that everything that was uh, significant or insignificant would be drawn, and just like you were saying, the, the like Superman and the planet. There were panels that are just sort of like. They're in the stadium or something, and something blows up, and one of the characters is there, and you're sort of pulling back, and you're seeing rocks falling and and dust around it, and but you and you, there's a tiny if you look you, there's a, there's a silhouette of the person that's in there. They want to you're, you have to search for it. Your eye has to you know maybe an, an, an X Men comic would make it so Wolverine's front and center, and there's some a couple rocks here and there. No, they you zoom out. You have the you know you have the seventy millimeter lens version of this explosion. And you can see the tiny silhouette of the character falling and, down. Well, I, I want to drag us very briefly back around to those speed lines because I think that that's a very good way to look at the difference between the way that manga is rendered and the way that Western comics are rendered. When the Flash moves fast, he's all blurred out. When somebody moves fast in manga, they are perfectly crystal clear and everything around them hmm. is blurred. And it's yeah. a difference in what you're emphasizing in that panel. It feels like you're moving fast with them. Exactly. Mm. So it's it's crazy. I mean, there's just a spectacle of it. Again, um, there's a lot of destruction in superhero books in the United States, but a lot of times there's a lot of artists that are just like, I don't want to draw that crowd. I don't want to draw that that building. And again, when you're going into the great Tokyo Empire, this flooded, broken place that it just, you look at it and it feels like, oh man, I need a tetanus shot. <laughs> um, you look at rubble and it's not just random gray blocks of broken stuff. You can tell what all of those used to be. Mm -hmm. Like that's part of a skyscraper that leaned over. That's a bridge. That's, you know, this is part of a burned out car. And people, because they're not crazy and they don't have 20 years to draw a book, usually don't throw that sort of stuff in there and it's it's crazy to see it so i guess we've we've talked a bit about how how um akira feels so casey if you had to sum up the plot of akira what oh, this yes. what this story actually is aside <laughs> from explosions and screaming what would akira be about yeah so i sort of you touched on it a little bit in your intro and i sort of think about it so it's about a motorcycle teenage motorcycle gang in neo tokyo 30 years after tokyo has been destroyed essentially um there are and there are several groups that are attempting to control the power of a mysterious entity called Akira, 
And one of the younger biker gangers named Tetsuo starts to develop these powers, these psychic powers. Then Akira is awakened, and he's just a small boy. He's a tiny little boy who doesn't speak very much, um, who various characters follow him around and he's used he's used as a pawn for these groups to control because they're afraid that since he is they're afraid that he was the genesis of this destruction that happened um in a standoff one of the espers the espers is killed and akira's reaction triggers a second catastrophic explosion that destroys neo tokyo once again so that doesn't end there our main characters have survived and in the app minus kaneda uh, uh, in the aftermath of the destruction, warring factions vie for control over the city. One is now led by Akira and with Tetsuo as his lieutenant, and another, a powerful, a powerful psychic named Lady Miyaku. Uh, a young woman who was working for Miyaku named Kei begins to discover she too is an Esper. As the fa- as the factions clash, a U.S. military operation begins to intervene with the aim of destroying Tetsuo. And as Tetsuo's power grows, he loses control eventually sacrifices himself to prevent another catastrophic explosion from destroying Neo Tokyo. Yeah, it, more or less. That's but, the thing that's crazy with this book is that just when you think, okay, this is as big as the scale can get, and it just keeps topping it. And then there's a doomsday satellite where uh, the colonel, who's one of my favorite characters, yeah. in the post-apocalypse, him and a scientist are kind of jury-rigged together this weapon that should be in every first-person shooter ever. <laughs> I would be shocked if it's not in a bunch of video games, but... There, there is one in Fallout, uh, Fallout New Vegas, right? Oh, there is! Yeah, you, you get that. You basically get that device, which is a little laser pointer, and whatever you point it at, an orbital satellite beams down a giant laser and destroys everything. Oh, so Akira's going there, too. That yeah. has to be from Akira. So, yeah, yeah um, this, is a, this is a crazy book that just keeps topping itself. I remember the first time I read it. I read the manga first. I'm one of those weird people that, again, I was kind of aware of the movie. But uh, Dark Horse put out the collections in 2000 through 2002. And every three or four months, one of these things came out. And I devoured this thing. I would read one of them and then I'd have to wait like three or four months. And when I got it, I would like be reading, reading, reading. Oh crap. I just read 200 pages. And then I'd be like starving for more. And every one of those volumes would top itself. It's kind of crazy how fast you can read 400 pages. Yes. This book reads so fast. It's really absolutely. Cause it's, I think it's somewhat intimidating, but so much of the so much of the information is conveyed visually, mm-hmm. which is as anybody that listens to View from the Gutters knows is one of our favorite fucking things. Like, show us, don't tell us, and it's just it's like a masterclass in doing that. It really is incredible just how much of it is conveyed visually, and so you can just glide over, but then you can also just go back and look at these big two panel spreads and just be like, or two page you know, spreads and just be like, whoa, like the destruction, everything that's oh, telling God. you the destruction sequences when you're just going through it and you, I actually, the, 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 the middle point where Takashi gets shot in the head by Mr. Zinezu, who's trying to assassinate yeah. Akira, the moment that just feels so, and we use this word with comics all the time and it just gets abused, which is cinematic. Mm-hmm. that you see this play out and I don't know how a lot of other creators could have done this where people react like holy shit he just got shot and then you see the soldiers hunt down Mr. Nezu and take him out and they like machine gun the shit out of him <laughs> and Takashi seems to be simultaneously falling in slow motion yes yes that it takes him forever it's, like, it's such a good like juxtaposition of action and just this one moment that will have all these 
really important implications. And it's done so well. Scott McCloud talks about how the gutter, which is the white space in between comic book panels, is basically your time telling apparatus. Because in between, in, you know, in that gutter, that could be a second, it could be a million years. And it's up to you to kind of piece together from visual information that you're getting to figure out what that time is. And that's such an interesting and incredible use of those gutters in that, that whole sequence is because it does feel very like all this shit is going on, but this one moment uh, where Takashi is is kind of falling. And everyone's going like, holy shit, yeah, they make that moment yeah. land. Yeah. It well, just, oh. I, I think that that's the br- biggest problem that I have with this book is I feel like it suffers from a real pacing problem yep. because it is so easy to read incredibly quickly and like there's a lot of repetitious moments yes. mm-hmm. in this book. There's yep. a lot of them going from place to place, passing through the same areas, all the times that they go through the sewers, all the times that they are crossing the ruins of Tokyo, all the times that somebody gets just riddled with machine gun fire. And you can picture in your head their body like writhing and twitching and getting blown to pieces by just the force of all of these bullets slamming into them. But you see that so many times and it be- can become difficult to really force yourself to slow down and to focus on each panel and to look at what's in there and really appreciate those details. It's very easy for your eye to just glide across the page and go, okay, they're walking and they're fighting and a guy gets shot and okay, now they're talking again. Now things are happening and you're skipping out on a lot of, you know, the, the thing that this book is really trying to do, which Mm -hmm. is, evoke being in this place at this time i think it kind of reminds me a bit of the thing that again the the question of time is real in pacing is in a lot of ways in comics is up to the reader Mm -hmm. and this is a book that has this sort of kinetic feel it's always pushing forward it has momentum and it's also a book that has these incredible visuals that you want to marinate yourself in so it's a but it's a bit like walking downhill where you could just run and stumble and miss a bunch of stuff or you can force yourself to go slowly and absorb it. You'll, all the meantime, you're like, because uh, uh, there's like action sequences in this book that are like 20 to 30 pages long. And I actually looked at the destruction sequence at the end of volume three, because this is, again, a bit like the Final Fantasy VI, which clearly drew a lot of inspiration from it. Half the story is the pre-apocalypse. Half the story is the post-apocalypse that you get thrown into a whole new familiar world where these characters who had roles and had jobs and had places in this world are completely turned upside down Mm -hmm. and you have to reorient yourself. Um, That destruction sequence that is sort of the KT boundary between those two moments is 30 pages long. It is crazy. Mm -hmm. I actually, but it doesn't feel like you're reading 30 pages. It feels like you're just standing there with your jaw open going, Oh God, Oh God. Oh God! Oh shit! Well, and to, it's, to me, it's those it's those sort of things that you know, taken the work as a whole, it's it is impressive. But I, I kept I kept thinking of when I was trying to sort of thinking about my issues with the pacing. I kept thinking of like, well, how was this originally published? And when it was originally published, in how many page segments did they probably you know? Probably ten to twenty, I yeah. guess. So so it's a, a bite sized, very very bite sized, like an American comic or less. Um, I couldn't help but thinking of like Charles Dickens being paid by the word. Like I couldn't help but think is it was the, the the length of the work entirely deliberate 
um, from Otomo's sort of idea of this is how long it has to take. This is this is my vision is there. Something that you're doing over eight years, it, I feel like it would be easy for it, you to run away from you and for you to have those moments where you know the factions in the post apocalypse are sort of like, well, we went and attacked Lady Miyako's fortress, but then we retreated, and then we're going to go back and attack again. And you're like, well, why didn't they just why didn't they just resolve what they wanted to resolve in one? I c- couldn't help but thinking is is it just like he's got a his job is longer if he takes longer telling the story and he gets paid more well, or I, I I I don't know I I think that he was suffering from something that's endemic of serialized works. Um, if you ever listen to George Martin talk about writing the Game of Thrones books, he reached a point that he liked to call the Marinese Knot. Um, mm. I, I won't spoil too much of that series if you haven't read it, but there's a particular character who's in a particular place, and they've which is Mir or marine marine um and they're like i'm not gonna leave here until i've resolved this issue and he's like but in my story she does leave Mm -hmm. she has to go to this other place and be there at a particular time and how do i get her to go um and so it's something you see a lot in serialized fiction where it's clear that the 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 author has a very clear idea of where the story begins and they have a very clear idea of where it ends and maybe they know some of the highlights in the middle, but they're kind of figuring it out as they go along. And they're like, okay, I'm in this place right now. How do I get everybody arranged so that they're in the right place at the right time? And you end up with an awful lot of faffing about and people like, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there and I, I working think it's a, to get people in the right place. And it just really, it draws the whole thing out. I think it can. I think a lot of that too comes from the level of, of, craftsmanship of the creator because the easiest way to get from point a to point b is just to go blah, 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 blah. okay they're there what's really harder is somebody who actually cares about making that transition make sense and i think uh, tomo and martin are both people that uh that really care about whether that actually works or not. And sometimes it takes them a long time to find that place and i know martin is i think martin is probably in a similar place to Atomo where that Martin said there's two different kinds of storytellers. There are architects and gardeners, and he considers himself a gardener. And that a gardener is somebody who plants a seed and something grows, and they don't always know what's going to be the biggest part of the garden. And that characters who were minor become your favorite halfway through. And then the architect is somebody who knows where every nail and every board and everything, they know exactly how many building supplies they're going to need and how long it's going to be. And I think the Tomo is a gardener where there are characters that started out being minor who clearly become some of his favorites. One of my examples is uh, Lady Chioko, who is, uh, she's sort of set up as uh, Kay's aunt, Mm -hmm. who runs a safe house for the, the terrorist group, the militant resistance group. And at first, she just seems to be this lady who's worried for Kay and worries about Ryu. And she becomes fucking Mike Hagar crossed with Zangief. Then she becomes the best character in the whole fucking book. She's awesome. She is like an incredible badass. There's like a bit where she uh, literally rips a door off of a wall and charges a guy with a submachine gun (laughs) and pushes him off the side of a boat. Uh. There's a guy she chucks a raft at. And pulls the cord, and while he's like, oh, she's caught in the great. raft expanding, she punches him through the raft. She drives a tank. She uses a rocket as like a melee weapon a and cudgel. fires it up. Yeah. Yes. I mean, this is a character that clearly is a part of being a gardener, which is halfway through, you're like, I really fucking like this character. Uh, she's not the main character, but um, there's a real love for those. Like, Mr. Nezu is another guy who kind of gets bigger. 
that he nominally works for Miyaku before the apocalypse, that he's a politician who's uh, trying to trying to do things. You think at first for the right reasons because Kay and Ryu, two characters you like, like, you know, work for him. But then you see him kind of try to break off and you don't know. He just seems to be just as corrupt as the people that he's rebelling against. And he's kind of awesome because he looks like a total rat. Yeah, yeah. He's got the rat teeth. Yeah. I think yeah. there's also something to be said, though, for what this story is about. Uh, which, in in the in the overall sense, is about basically life wanting to evolve, whether it's ready to evolve or not, and kind of figuring out a way to do that. And I think there is a lot when you look at the characters that it's following. Like Chioko doesn't spend a great deal of time wandering about; she's going exactly where she wants to. It's Kaneda and like K a little less. And Tetsuo that are kind of like, and and then Tetsuo's lieutenant, because they don't know what the fuck is going on. The people that know where they're going, there's much less, there's much less kind of directionless there. And I think that's, I feel to me that that kind of fits in with this greater narrative of like, you don't know what to do until you know, and then you do it. Well, it's also a story about young people. That yeah, there, which... there's a couple adults. I mean, Miyako is one of Lady Miyako is one of the older people in the story. But aside from her, the Colonel, um, and a couple other characters, most of these people are teenagers or children. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tetsuo is a character that's trying to figure out his purpose. That he keeps trying to figure out what he is and trying to, in a lot of ways, resist the changes that are happening to him. And, um, it's, it's kind of crazy. So I, let's get into the, the main character of this story. I mean, Canada or Canada, uh, who is really kind of interesting as a lead character. Can, can I say that is the confusion over the pronunciation because of the first dub? I think it's the first dub and the second dub. Um, cause the second dub that they did in like 2000 or something, they said call him Canada and Akira. Akira. Which I still say Akira, even though I think that's improper uh, emphasis. Akira would be, because the R sound is not, it's, right. it's, a, it's a different We, we say Akira here, like Kira. I think it's Akira. So. Okay. Yeah. It's it's one of those things, like John Constantine, I know I'm saying it wrong, <laughs> and I don't care. My, my very simple understanding of the Japanese language is that it's broken into syllables, mm-hmm. and each syllable is only pronounced one way. Yes, that is absolutely. So, so Akira. Ra. Yeah, well, if it were a, a key, if you got the, uh, you'd have like a little uh, line over the top of it, meaning yeah. that you would extend the vowel. Yeah. So. But it's just because the, all of Americans have decided it's Akira. Okay. That's how we say it. Yeah. So, but well, I, I want to object. Okay, go ahead. Kaneda is not the main character of this book. Okay. He's absent for a huge he part is. of it. He, yeah, he disappears at the end of the destruction and he goes into like the 2001 Space Odyssey dimension for yeah. the full mm-hmm. volume. I I think if you can call anybody the main protagonist of this book, I think it's Kay. Yeah, Kay. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of weird. It it is a bit of Game of Thronesy again to bring back to that that George R. R. Martin sort of thing where there's this (laughs) mass of characters. I mean, is Jon Snow the main character of Game of Thrones? Is Danny the main character of Game of Thrones? I think I think trying to find a main character in this is it's an exercise in futility. I don't think there is just one. I think you're getting you have an ensemble cast, as it were. I think because it, and they come in and out of focus as their import in the story kind of uh, fades and or waxes and wanes. Because I think there's a the, the volume three, the one where the d- disaster happens. 
um, Tetsuo is mostly absent from that one. Mm-hmm. That he gets horribly wounded by the death space laser mm-hmm. that just just blows his arm off. I like the fact that it doesn't disintegrate it. The part that connects it to his torso is like a piece of skin, and the rest of it's just hanging there. And he's looking at horror, like ah. <laughs> and the next time you see him for a long time, he just has the cape hanging over it. Before you realize he's made himself a robot arm, a robot arm that grows into like a gross tumor thing yeah, and attacks people. Back to the body horror. <laughs> it does. I mean, he turns into a giant god baby made out of tumors. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's fucking terrifying where he's like melting around people. But if I'm not going to throw you too far off course, I, I want to ask a question. Sure. Who is the antagonist of this book? I think if if we're going to get, uh, you could easily say that it's uh, Tetsuo. That's, I think, the easy answer to give. But I think that in a lot of ways, the real answer is this growing power and your inability to handle it. I absolutely 100% agree with that because for the longest time, I'm like, okay, Akira's the bad guy. No, he's and a- he's going to start doing anything. He is like, he barely does anything. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. is not an actor in this book, he is the avatar of a force. And I think it's that force and man's attempt to shackle it control it and weaponize it that is the antagonistic force that predicates the entire story of this book well well, i mean you only have to look at the oh i'm sorry joe no 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 i was good miyaku says this much like when she's explaining what's going on she's like this was never your power it was life and it was us Mm. trying to damn life and and life finds a way <laughs> if we're going to take this as a, this is the next evolution of people we could also use the again this is a story about young people that you look at the way that this power if this is like the thing that we need to be and that the military will need to control it <laughs> is this is just a thing another puberty metaphor god damn it yeah, it's a total puberty metaphor you look at how <laughs> how tetsuo fights against this power that he tries to suppress it with drugs that this there are so many many like handfuls of pills being thrown into faces to the point that the pills both suppress the power from growing in a natural way, but they also uh, kick it off in people. Like that's why the great Tokyo empire just throws handfuls of capsules into the soup, into the soup yeah. that they feed people. And occasionally they can make people's heads explode. I guess we got a bad one, <laughs> but uh, in a lot of ways, it's sort of the puberty that Tetsuo is refusing to grow up for a big part of it. And occasionally he's forced to, and it's like a Pokemon where he has these different levels and he sort of achieves that next level where for the first part of the story, he's like sweating and he's in pain and his head seems to be bigger and his hair gets crazier. But he hits this point where he sort of like he hits the next level and he sort of kind of evens out a little bit and he looks kind of normal. His hair kind of looks white and he looks calm. He starts to look like the Tetsuo from the beginning of the story. And and that starts happening to him again. And it's sort of like he's resisting this change. And I guess you could say he's resisting growing up. And what I find really fascinating about Tetsuo is that he's a monster who does terrible things to people, but it's a Walter White story hmm. that he's almost entirely motivated by his inferiority complex, especially with Kaneda, that Kaneda is this guy who's been his older brother forever and kind of bullies him kind of uh, leads him in the gang. And there are these moments where he's he wants to be him, but he also wants to surpass him. But he wants his approval. So no matter how much of a giant god baby that he becomes, he becomes this thing that's ruling this, this like post-apocalyptic empire of crazy people. 
And he's still desperate to to sort of like prove to his friend, like he wants Kanada's approval on all this. And it's it's so weird because even those moments where his body is getting out of control because that power is too much for his body to contain and it's just grabbing shit and trying to pull itself into it. Who does he call to? He calls to Kanada for help. Like he wants this guy who's been his big brother since childhood to protect him. And it's it's kind of crazy that it's like this this ugly broken relationship is sort of at the heart of these two guys. And what I kind of enjoy about Canada as a character is he's really kind of an asshole. Oh, he's, yeah, absolutely. he's a yeah. huge asshole. He, he's such a, he's a, he's a he's bully. A punk. He's a fucking punk. They, they steal, they rob, they beat the shit out of other biker gangs at the beginning. He blackmails that one nurse into giving him drugs. Oh, and, he gets yeah. her pregnant yeah. and is like, okay, that's your problem. And he, it's like either he doesn't get it because he's obliviousness is one of his key traits. Either he doesn't get it or he doesn't care. And yeah. I don't know which is, which is true or which is worse. Or I, I don't think he cares to get it. He's yeah, just. It's- He's a piece of shit. Um, they they do all sorts of awful things to people. I mean, they're constantly popping pills and driving recklessly. Um, and what's kind of crazy is I can get, even though Canada is clearly not the smartest or most capable person in this story, I get why he's the leader of that gang. Because this is a guy who takes stupid, crazy risks all the time for the stupidest of reasons. Like he breaks into a government facility to get his motorcycle back. <laughs> and he he's like, like Jack Burton from big trouble in little China, where he will pratfall occasionally. And he like, he gets caught cause he kicks a fucking pail over cause he's not paying attention. I would almost say that in the beginning part of the story, fucking uh canada is the fucking antagonist because he is the one that causes all this awful shit to happen because if you just fucking let it go then everything would have been so much better just let the shit <laughs> go like, he had to be a dick and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and he gets involved in the story mostly because his friend becomes a monster and he can't stop creeping on this girl in the terrorist group. Yeah. <laughs> and he just keeps pushing it. And what I kind of love about him, though, is that the reason that he's all of these bad things and this group of teenagers looks up to him is he's fucking unkillable. Yeah. He really he's, he's always he's always he's literally he's charging. He's charging towards the uh, his friend who has the powers of a god with a laser rifle he's he's like he's like it doesn't matter we gotta go kill him and it's you know entire stadiums are blowing cities are blowing up around him and he's like i'm gonna do it and he doesn't he has no plan and he doesn't understand why other people aren't running to do this with him and he like chastises him he bullies poor joker like (laughs) crazy and just like dude you do know what you're running up against with no plan it's like and his his gun runs out of battery pack so he just uses it as a bludgeon (laughs) he hits him with it in another universe he would be Conan. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, he's got this plot force field around him. Like Everyone else is dying. He can get thrown off of buildings. Um, the other thing I love is that he frequently fails. Like, there's a scene where he runs to Kay's rescue against some crazy psychic giant guy. In, like, volume five, he bursts in on a motorcycle, immediately crashes and hits a wall. And then his friend Kaisuke has to make the rescue. And... Canada is still sitting against the wall, rubbing his head, going, oh. <laughs> there's, a, there's a song by Kid Cudi called Unfuckwittable. And that's what that song makes me think of Canada. Because it's just, just like, I, I don't even care, right? Like, you can you can bring it, but I'm, I am unimpressed. I am unimpressed by everything. It's- like, my friend just leveled half of the fucking city I live in. 
don't care. I'm gonna go. And, I'm gonna go kill him with I'm, this laser gun. It's like he's still living in the world where they're both biker gang members, and they're gonna settle this with a fist fight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which which he eventually does. Yeah. Right? Like that's the best thing is that when he's finally able to like like deliver his vengeance upon Tetsuo, he beats the shit out of him. He yeah. doesn't yeah, do mean, it with a gun. At the end of the day, like what Tetsuo did and what he is don't matter. Because they're bros, and yeah. they're going to settle it like bros. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's actually it's. I think it speaks. I mean, for me, anyways, that part of the story at the end is so touching. When like Tetsuo has become this monster, and the person he calls out for is Canada. He's like, it's just like He's because scared. that's the one person that has like been he, there. It's like this guy survived all of this. And you think maybe he could protect him. Yeah, he has yeah. nothing that he could do, and you—it's kind of great because Kay really, in a lot of ways, is the chosen one of the story. She's mm-hmm. the one that that uh, Lady Miyako, who's another psychic who kind of disappeared from the program and managed to start her own cult. Um, I'm not really sure what their motivation was at the beginning of the story. All of this gets kicked off because. Uh, Tetsuo encounters uh, Takashi, and Takashi, I think, meeting together sort of kickstarts something in Tetsuo's brain. But Takashi was sort of broken out or kidnapped by by Ryo and Kei's group that work for Miyako and Nezu, and they did it because they thought he was Akira. So who who ordered that kidnapping? Because I it seems like a weird thing with Miyako to do. Because it seems like she would know to not break this guy out of his frozen thing. And it makes me think, what if that was Nezu? Because Nezu is really big on trying to grab this thing as a power base. I think kid. it has to be. Because yeah. you, you yeah. get the sense that, you know, later Miyaku is trying to instigate some kind of social change. Because, well, they don't really get into it too much in the manga. In the anime, it feels like it's a lot clearer that modern Japanese society is incredibly corrupt. You know, you have a, a huge fat overclass and a desperate, overly policed underclass. And it seems like she's legitimately trying to foment social change. And so she's partnered up partnered up with Nezu, who is a politician, and he's just a scumbag who wants power. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of like loosely aligned. He nominally works for her, although he has his own agenda. He's afraid of her, clearly. And Kay and Ryu both work for him. Yeah. And so they're just doing what he tells them to do. And so he probably found out from Miyaku about the program and was like, oh, go steal me the Sakura thing and we'll totally like kick off the revolution. And he's when, really like, no, I'll be in charge. Because when he does get his hands on Akira, he doesn't tell Miyaku that he has him. Yeah. And that's kind of weird, too. Is again, that's a thing that they're sort of fighting against that, that power was that Akira is barely a character in this. That it's it, they say that about Tetsuo as he gets more powerful, that eventually the power will just eradicate your personality and you'll just become a vessel. That Akira is just a child that if you grab him by the hand, he'll walk with you, he'll even run with you, but he seems to be completely unresponsive. He never speaks. There's a weird emotional reaction when he sees Takashi die in front of him that sets him off, but it it. It isn't until he gets shot in the end by Ryu, who quickly dies under all that rubble, that you see his personality come back where the other Esper kids come to him. And you get to see him kind of become himself again before him and Tetsuo sort of absorb each other and spare the world. But even in sparing the world, they fuck up that city <laughs> so bad. Oh, yeah. So let's, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with a lot more Akira. 
So we're gonna be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. It's the Film and Water Podcast. The Film and Water Podcast covers movies new and old, classic, and uh, not so classic. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available weekly on fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And we are back on Radio vs. the Martians. We are talking about Katsuhiro Otomo's manga epic and the anime-inspired Akira. And uh, I'm thinking about sort of, I guess you could say the elephant in the room or the giant god baby in the room (laughs) or the giant growing spherical destructive sphere in the room, which is that this is a a book that's about a lot of mass destruction. Yeah. That you get to see shit blow up, and then after it blows up, it does get blowed up again. And... um, in the United States, we kind of like our disaster porn. It's, it's, there's a cottage industry. The people like Michael Bay. I mean, there's these movies like you know Armageddon and Independence Day. And I think that the weird thing with Americans and things like the Poseidon Adventure is that for the most part, even though there's ostensibly a lot of implied mass death in these sorts of movies, it's pretty bloodless the way we tend to like it. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, sure, all those people are dying in a fireball on Independence Day in that, that tunnel, but it's really important that the dog escapes. That's, that's <laughs> the part that we're worried about. As long as that dog is okay, the clearly thousands of people that are stuck in their cars, fuck them. Right. They're not characters. Yeah, this, was, this is a big sticking point for me because I, as, as I've grown older, I really do have less of patience for post-apocalyptic literature and film and comic books and what have you, even though our appetite for it seems to have grown a lot in, in recent years. And um, it's on some level, it's, it's really uncomfortable. I think the thing about this book is really uncomfortable and not just from, from like a, Oh my God, that would be a devastatingly depressing event to end up happening. But the fact that not, not a little bit of the motivation and the reason why, uh, we have this imagery in the book and in in the anime itself is because of the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan. So it's mm-hmm. it's part of their national obsession is the idea of seeing their seeing their a city swallowed up in a ball of fire. And I think that's what makes yeah. the, the separation where Otomo does this and you know Roland Emmerich does this is that Roland Emmerich is never lived in a country that's had a nuclear bomb dropped on it in a war. And Otomo did, and he was born less than 10 years after that happened. Mm. And you can see it in the works of things like the original Godzilla movie, that there is a a destruction factor to this, that it's not treated in Akira the way that we treat it in American films, that the destruction in Akira is kind of horrific, Mm -hmm. that there are bodies in the rubble, that there are times there you see Kay or the Colonel or somebody else who's going through this broken, flooded place. And again, it looks like you can get a tetanus shot. You're like, oh my God, this looks... It looks like people die on a regular basis. They slide down a hill and there's bones sticking out of the yeah. dirt. There's clearly a point where some of these these gullies have people just threw bodies over the side at some point. And there's something about it that just makes it horrific in a way that I think a lot of other people would create popcorn. I, well, I, I, I certainly think that I don't know much about Otomo's biography, um, but the this not only mirrors sort of 
what has happened to to Japan in modern days in terms of having cities blown up and having to rebuild, but also, you know, the big thing for the politicians is that they're going to have the hosting the Olympics is mm-hmm. coming. And so this is the mm-hmm. same thing that happened with Japan 10 years after, you know, more than 10 years after, I think it was 1960, the the Olympics were in were in Japan. And so they built had a whole big boom to build up to bring the world back to back to Japan to say, hey, we're 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 back. We're you know, we're better than we were before, but we're we're at peace. Um so I feel like a great deal of him putting it in this setting and having the things happen in this setting are him sort of retelling parts about his own youth. Um because Ot- Otomo was alive during the the Olympics in, in 1960 and of course he experienced being of that generation who grew up after the uh, the destruction who you know who grew up in a world that was being built up around them and as you get closer to the 70s and 80s it looks more and more like it will fall apart yeah and and again when the you could say that Akira represents sort of the past this thing that they literally buried yeah and he's loose, and they know that he's loose. The politicians don't want it. They're like, "What? We did the, the the satellite strike, and you know, we killed Tetsuo or whatever, whatever." The the Akira is listed as officially dead. We can just go on pretending and paper over it, and nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And they go to fire the colonel. And I think this is the most heroic example of a military coup, <laughs> where politicians are taken and shot. But it's. I mean, there's really no good guys in this in this situation. Yeah, the colonel's an interesting one for me uh, because he is such a so much of his motivation is so much of his motivation is um, is kind of obscured, and it becomes more and more. You know, in the beginning, it's trying to protect Neo Tokyo, and then at the end, it's trying to kind of absolve himself of what he sees. Uh, as the sin of allowing Akira to escape, but uh, it's it's always kind of interesting to me. That's something that doesn't really come through as well in the in the anime. I think like his arc is stunted because you have to fit two thousand pages into like two less than two hours, and it's really, I don't know that that would be something you could do. But it's it's really kind of interesting to me because there are so many people in this book that you want to you want to pin that villain badge on and you you just can't it's like one of the it's um uh it's one of the great things about black panther uh is is that you you can't write off killmonger the way you can write off a, a multitudinous amounts of other the Marvel's, red skull yeah for right example. who's just mm. like evil and it's He's like i have the designation <laughs> evil so i'm yeah. going to do evil things like killmonger is like a lot of times he's talking and i found myself going well, that was an excellent point. Shit. I, yeah. yeah <laughs> Goddamn. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I totally get it. <laughs> it kind of reminds me there's a, a professional wrestler I'm a real fan of, uh, CM Punk. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though they're they're doing these stories in a world that has a pre-written ending and there's a prescribed good guy and bad guy, one of the things I always love is even when he was a bad guy, he would refuse to let the other guy win in arguments, even if he could win in a match. <laughs> and there were several points, and this is the same kind of thing here, whether it's a Killmonger or the Akira thing, where I'm like, it's like, there were moments where he just made the good guy look like an asshole. <laughs> and I think you see some of that with, with the Colonel, which is that he does some monstrous things, but I think over the course of it, you see that, yeah, he's in charge of these kids that the government is trying to turn into weapons, but he has a genuine affection and sense of protection from them that you don't see with anyone else working on that project. 
that he goes to great degrees just to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. And he worries about them. And when he finds out they're still alive in the aftermath of uh, this disaster, he he moves to try to protect them. And, and I think it's kind of interesting, like you said, that sense of him trying to come to terms with the shit that he's done. There's a moment where one of the people who works for the great Tokyo empires joined this cult because you're going to gravitate towards uh, Lady Miyako or uh, Tetsuo's group because you just want some ways where you can be safe and get food. And this is a guy who's fallen in with Tetsuo's group and he recognizes the colonel in a crowd and runs after him. And when he sees him, he salutes him and the colonel refuses to take him with him. It's like, I don't trust myself to be put in charge of anybody where the soldier just kind of wants his old boss back because it's a, someone that he could trust and believed in. But the colonel sees himself as like, you shouldn't believe in me. All this shit here, a lot of this is my fault. It's so interesting because if you com- compare that with Ryu, um, as far as the arcs of sort of male, of, of adult males that are that are in a leadership position, Ryu is total failure. I mean, he, he fails to... Uh, he fails to sort of complete his mission and ends up being a pitiful alcoholic, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and he even has the affection of Kay, who is, you know, who is the vestal virgin that everyone that everyone wants to, all the men want to possess in the story. And he, he has her and he even fails to get her. So it's interesting to see that duality of, of the, uh, the adult male figure who doesn't, who, uh, who doesn't become the paragon. And it certainly helps that... Uh, Kay has uh, Chiyoko, who basically goes, yeah, that guy, that guy's not worth your time. He will drag you down and is protective of Kay. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple adults. I think uh, Chiyoko and Lady Miyako are two of the adults that have their shit together. And almost every other adult is a fuck up. I know one person you mentioned before is this uh, lieutenant to Tetsuo, uh, Tobaya. Yeah. During the break, I brought him up because he does not have a name. Yeah, I, I googled it, and he's he's just called the captain, and he's just this guy with a tie, who probably was a used car salesman in the world before. Yeah, he's he, like the hype man for the Great Tokyo yeah, Empire. And he looks weirdly out of place because he's actually wearing like clean clothes yeah. and has his hair styled through this entire thing. So he creeped me out more than anything else. Yeah, that's that makes him a scarier person because he's, everyone else is kind of like a Mad Max villain. He's clearly the guy who wants to be the puppet prime minister or something when this is when you know when this sort of fallow period is done. He's kind he of won't. General Hux, isn't he? Yeah, yeah he's got. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good analogy. He's got you, kind of a Yakuza thing going on. That he works for Tetsuo because Tetsuo is powerful. But he, if he ever had an opening to just cap Tetsuo in the head and know it would kill him, he would. Uh, because then he would be in charge and then he gets <laughs> yeah. to basically, they can just carry the, the, the godchild around on a rickshaw and he'd really be in charge. Which is how they basically use Akira anyways. Yeah. And it's, yeah, but he's a, pretty terrifying person and he gets his in the end yeah it's one of the more satisfying moments it <laughs> wasn't it the the the, the bio weapon he gets shot with uh yeah yeah the darts, the yeah. darts. Yeah. And one of them hits tattoo and just makes him mad but then i think yeah no i think and i think that's what gets him i think he gets crushed yeah or both yeah like that's what's interesting to me is is I think a majority of the main characters end up getting crushed by rubble at the end. <laughs> There's I'm a lot sure to go around. Not, yeah, yes. I'm sure that's not metaphorical in any way. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, God, it, that's the thing I kind of love is it, again, we bring up the Game of Thrones thing. You have a cast of, of hundreds, if not thousands, in this book. And that's the thing that you, you kind of get is the characters sort of come about out of situations that 
there are characters that are remarkably memorable, even if they just have a small role, like the Birdman, I think they call him. Yeah, and oh, the big God, lanky yeah. dude. Yeah. Oh, the big lanky dude who kind of looks like... Oh, God, he kind of looks like a nerd, but he's like seven feet tall. He looks yeah. like he belongs in the Ramones. Yeah. He's something... <laughs> I was like, why is, why, is, why is one of the Ramones there? He's like a an Andre the Giant version of that killer guy from Sin City with the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he'd be the boss in a final fight game. Yeah, yeah he definitely does. Double dragon. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. like a real tall guy who you have to punch for a while. Um, but yeah, him, um, the Birdman is the skinny, blindfolded psychic with a picture of an eyeball drawn on his forehead who's like screaming prophecies from the top yeah, of rubble. Yeah, he's the most, I, I think in a lot of ways, he's actually the most like stereotypical like manga-esque character in the whole damn thing because he's got this really interesting uh, design and he just screams things all the time. He's intruders! Intruders! Yeah, yeah, just like, I was like, well, God, will somebody kill that guy? I love when he got pushed off that cliff. I know, that was, that was, the, that was the best. Well, he gets pushed the... by, what's his, his name's George Hamashi? What's the... Yamada? The, Yamada, Yamada, yeah. yeah. He's, yeah. he's the U.S. Special Forces guy who's dropped behind lines to try to, I guess, to try to kill Tetsuo, right? Yeah. That yeah. They've also to kill split Akira up. as well. Yeah. And he has like a the little dart weapon that looks real. It looks like a Super Nintendo um, supplement. It yeah, looks, and what yeah. it looks like is the the zapper frame that they created for the Wii remote. Yes. it does. No Wii remote. It looks just like that. It does. Oh Whoa. man, yeah, that thing is that thing is kind of crazy. And I was like, somebody's got to use one of these things. It was like Chekhov's dart gun, and yeah. I just I wanted somebody to get shot with it just so I could see what it does, and it was worth it because the guy just starts bleeding out of his face. Oh yeah, no, that I mean, there's a lot of face bleeding in this yeah. though. It's weird that it's weird that that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole body horror thing, I think is also it's it's also one of those things that comes out of just having a nuclear weapon dropped on you. Yeah, but you see some ugly shit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Power is not Superman power because Superman's pretty. Yeah, absolutely. And that's I keep it's it's always interesting to me the way these things. um, There are we tend to think of cultures in in this kind of like very large ways, and I love the way it kind of man. I, I love the way that similar like visuals in different cultures will convey different things, and I I think that's one of my favorite things about reading manga in general and Akira just like the the visual language and what it what it means the translation is kind of slightly different when you see like speed lines and stuff like that well yeah it, that goes back to what Casey was saying earlier about Japan being the only nation that's had a nuclear weapon used on it in a time of war in America Radiation gives you superpowers. Yeah. yeah. Radiation you... makes you the X-Men. And in Japan, radiation makes you a mutated freak. Yeah. So yeah, you can win a lot of fights, but you will Godzilla look like hot. To... Yeah. Yeah. Bring yeah. Godzilla to you. <laughs> just like, you were, you were just a hot garbage monster that you couldn't win all the fights with the U.S. military, but you won't want to be that. I mean, even Tetsuo is kind of terrified of himself while he's doing that and he's merging into that aircraft carrier. So I, I've got a question, and speaking of the aircraft carrier, which is. How do we take... Because in the story of Japan getting two, bombed with two nuclear bombs by the United States, the United States shows up late in the game in this story as the 
uh, as the well, if uh, you know, if we don't do something about this, then there's going to be you know the entire world's going to blow up. Essentially, how do you guys read the sort of Otomo's treatment of America and the American military as as a part of this story? Because because they're also hosting the international team of scientists that are hopefully going to try to find a way to fix this. And that one Buddhist monk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Karma. Tars- uh, he's kind of like the good guy version of the Birdman. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so how, how how do you guys how do you guys read the U.S. in this story? I like that they don't save the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a definite change. If this was anything else, it'd be like Will Smith would be a pilot on that aircraft carrier, <laughs> and uh, they they that actually George Yamada, that guy would have been the hero of the story if yeah. this was an American book, but he really doesn't accomplish anything close to his mission. In fact, he kind of makes it worse because he sets off Tetsuo the third time. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's interesting. It's 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 on the nose, isn't it? Right? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to host all these international scientists. We've already had a team like with boots on the ground for right. like several weeks, and, and they're no intention with, of listening to those scientists yeah, yeah, either. Exactly. So it's like, oh, look at what we're doing over here, but don't look over here because that's not the stuff we want you to see. Well, and just the fact that for all of the United States' military power, they're really pretty impotent to solve this problem. Yeah. They don't do anything productive. Or anything that helps make the situation better, they are just fucking shit up. Yeah, I, I was, I was hearing, I was reading something that someone was talking about the Netflix adaptation of Death Note. So Death Note was a manga turned into a TV series, a very long TV series, yeah. many many years, and they condensed all of that into like a you know a hundred twenty minute movie or something with white people with yeah well whitewashing. So it wasn't it wasn't just the whitewashing. So. The the conflict be behind that adaptation was it's a story about a kid who um, has the power to kill anyone that he wants to, and he's a very smart kid. He realizes that he has to start covering his tracks and become anonymous, um, and he's going to try to do it to kill every bad person in the world and make the world a, a, as close to a utopia as possible. But of course, he becomes evil and he becomes e- the bad guy in the end. Um, for a for a story where the main character is a Japanese high schooler is a different thing if that character is an American, is a white American male who suddenly gets the power to kill anyone he wants to. Like Finally, it's, white people have the power. It's, it's, it's a completely different... So in, in the same way, like in Akira 2, right? We're, we're in American audiences, but this is written... These are This is about Japan. This is why we have the ending is the way it is. The ending is... Canada's there with K, and they're on their motorcycles, and uh, I guess it's the United Nation rolls up with, like, food and medical supplies, and they basically run them off and say, fuck you, this is my country, you can leave, you can leave the shit over there, but leave, leave our country, you know? Yeah, there's a point at the beginning, in the middle part, where they get a sort of a sense of what's happening in the outside world, and yeah... Neo Tokyo is just part of this overall country, but it sounded like Russia had taken over all of northern Japan. And all they see is just they were just going to be conquered again, that they see a wound and they're just going to descend on this shit like sharks. And it's I think it's critical to remember that, like, uh, Neo Tokyo gets messed up. Nowhere else does. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there are all these people living in this Mad Max apocalypse world. And they could just leave. Like, they could go somewhere else, and the rest of the world is fine, and they don't, because this is their home. This is the place that they live, and they're not going to let yet another group of people come in and just dictate the way that this place is run. They're like, no, 
this is our home. We're going to run it our way for our people. And you're not going to tell us what to do or control us. So the the end of the story, um, I'm still not quite sure how to read that. I get kind of a Stanley Kubrick vibe to it. That as they ride off into the city, uh, we get sort of the ghostly image of both Yamagata, who got his head blowed up in the first volume, who's one of their dead friends. And he also sees Tetsuo, as he was at the beginning. And the city starts to rebuild itself, and it becomes the beautiful place it was at the beginning. Is that magical realism, or is this the power of Akira that's actually it's evolved to the point where it's not you know lashing out and scared adolescents, but sort of an adulthood of of being able to create rather than just destroy? I read it as them riding off into the future. Mm-hmm. That this was an indication that they've grown up that they're taking responsibility for themselves and they're going to build a new world rather than just, you know, let somebody else restore the old world. And that's kind of the meaning of them saying like, no UN, like you can't just come in and put things back the way that it was. Things are different now. We're different now. And we're going to create the world that we want. So you see it, you guys see it as, as metaphorical. Well, no, I, I think, I think it's a uh, as as it as the saying goes it's a little column A and a little column B. I think I think that as they've grown up Akira has also kind of broken through and and kind of achieved what what it needed to achieve this this force. And so I think it is I think it's that's the world they're building a, a world in which kind of these things work together. Because Kaneda is there. Like he understands what Akira is on a level that, and maybe uh, um, K understands as well. But like, they they know what's up. Like, it's no it's no mistake that they're there. And well, they're K, like, K is an esper. Yeah, she has yeah, the power. Absolutely. Basically. And at this yep. point, she's the only one left. Yeah. Everybody else is is dead. Yeah. So I, I definitely think it's them working together. Um, but I I think the the actual panel is. I think it's magical realism in the way that like they are, this is what the future, this is what lies in the future is they will rebuild. That it's kind of a, an illustration of a time jump. Yeah. So yeah, I think, um, cause I, I could honestly go either way. Yeah. I think I, well, and I think that I, I haven't read anything about this, but I would not be as surprised if Otomo said, yeah, you make the, the like the like, Japanese creators love to do that. They love to be like, well, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> well, I'm really, it's, it's up to you. Because so, that's what like if, if people ask Shinshiro Watanabe like about Cowboy Bebop spoilers for 25 year old or 20 year old anime. Like at the end, it's like, well, what happens to Spike? And he's like, well, what do you think happens to Spike? <laughs> Oh, like, the, the modern uh, the age of the nerd does not like that answer. No, because they can't they can't deal with it. Well, I think it's significant that the last page is looking back at the rubble of Neo Tokyo with this one jagged piece of concrete with a bunch of rebar sticking out of it and a big A that looks to be written in blood. That's clearly evoking the imagery of a grave, mm-hmm. Akira's grave. Yeah, and it's basically, I mean, in my mind, saying. You know, okay, yes, they're going to ride off into this bright new future, but that future is built on the grave and the blood and the wreckage that came before it. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's, 
I mean, all that's that's civilization, right? Yeah, it's all everything's built on graves. Yeah, <laughs> so, everything's built on graves. That's going to be the name of my debut album. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, last year was the 35th anniversary of Akira first being serialized in Young Magazine, and. Clearly, I know you guys know this better than almost anyone. Comics are a very different thing than they were in 1982. Are you saying they're not for kids anymore? I keep hearing about that. Not they're, just not, for kids. They're, not ju- they're not just for kids anymore. I keep hearing this. Not your daddy's comic books. <laughs> they're not. They're oh, also man. not that, too. That's so weird. Oh, it's such an insecure sort of way to sort of push that. But, oh, God. That that aside, comics aren't, aren't what they used to be. That You know, you go into a comic book shop, it's a very different place. There were... You, if you found a comic book shop in 1982 that you would have found there. So, I mean, that aside, we are reading it in 2018. And the question is, how well does this thing hold up? It's a seminal work. It's an influential work. But when you're reading it, some of you guys, for the first time this year, um, is this one that, that holds up? I mean, yeah, it holds up for me. It holds up. I mean, like, I, you can go back and read... Uh, was wait when it came out in eighty two? Yeah, eighty two through ninety. What was going on at uh, DC in eighty two? Bunch of Silver Age bullshit. I or, mean, well, I they, guess they the were Bronze Age. They were leading up to man. Bronze is a lot less valuable than silver. Yeah, yeah. right. They were getting um, they were getting up to Crisis on Infinite Earths. They Hal getting, Jordan was getting told by random black men. Yeah, he was kind of the guy who just got served a lot in that point. But yeah, I think I, I think the only thing that was really kind of jumping, I think Daredevil from Frank Miller was happening. Right, that makes that sounds about right. So yeah, if you go back and read anything that isn't that, it, I mean, you have several different runs going on at the time that are that are pretty important. But like around that era, but like I challenge you to go back and read ninety percent of it and see if it holds up half as well as Akira does. Like, I think that's always the thing with older comics, especially even 1982, is that you kind of have to read them with a different set of expectations. Oh, absolutely. It's and like, I love a lot of that shit. Like, oh, I, me too. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking shit on that. I, I love the Shakespearean drama of it. I love the way that villains, like, the villain monologue back then, that's like, they don't do that shit anymore. Everybody's just like, I want to punch a face in, but it's like... If you kind of want to get a sense of it, Doctor Doom is the only character, well, him and Namor are the only people who've really retrained their speech pattern from yes. that age of comics. Yeah. And it just kind of became their character at yeah. that certain point. And there's a different kind of pacing in older comics that it's harder to read Silver Age comics and you shouldn't go in expecting to read something like Saga yeah. if you're reading old Ditko Spider-Man. I would really not ever recommend that somebody read the Silver Age for pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of I, have I, them I, for I what, then? No, I, no absolutely <laughs> read it for pleasure, because that shit is hilarious. It's bonkers, but it's it's paced differently, and it isn't, it's kind of like if you watch a movie from the 1940s, acting is different now than it is yeah. was yeah, then. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Akira, this is the thing that I kind of got out of it, is that Akira feels surprisingly modern from a book mm. that's coming out in 82. Not just the pacing, and this is something that I know gets bandied about as a pejorative, but decompressed storytelling. That decompressed storytelling generally is usually the idea that uh, something that might be told in an issue might be told in a character arc that goes for like 12 issues now, that a conversation that might have been two panels in 1965 will now happen over 10 pages, that you will make each of those moments um, 
a different image rather than a single image with a large word bubble or caption. So this book is very decompressed from that, that standpoint, but I think it's the best kind of decompression because again, I think it comes from the fact that a lot of people who do manga in Japan are also animators. And this is kind of made at an animation pace that it's not enough to just have one image of like K or Kanada going down a hill we see them go all the way down and you see them stumble on something or you see them um, react to something. And that's the places where I think you can add a lot of the body language that makes them them. Mm -hmm. And there's something that just feels at home. If you were reading this alongside like say black science or chew or any of the books that were coming out nowadays that it's paced much differently. I want to answer your question and I, I want to say no. It okay. hasn't hold, held up because in 1982, I think that the shit was mind blowing. And it's one of those works where the ground has shifted underneath it, which is to say it's very readable today because there have been 35 years of people catching up to what this work was doing in the 80s. And so it feels very much of a piece with what you might get today in a lot of places. But at the time when this was coming out, it's like, holy shit, what the hell is this? To the degree that it inspired an entire generation. And I don't think that you can get that experience today as a modern reader. There was, I, I, just, I just think there's, there's something different about taking the story in, in its totality when it was a product of over eight years. Yeah. So if you think about the, the analog to an American comic, and I guess they probably don't do trades of things that came out in the 80s, but you know, if I want to go and read something like Southern Bastards, I'll have a collection that'll be four or five issues, and maybe, you know, what, what what's the normal sort of term for, uh, a, a, you know, of a whole series? Maybe 30 issues, 40 issues or something like that. You know, and that's that represents what three or four years of collected sort of storytelling. There is something that is there's something that is just insane about the the largesse of this work and then trying to digest it in a way that it wasn't originally intended to be digested. I've said I've heard that said about the Harry Potter books too that I think that future generations will lose out on the experience of having to wait between volumes. Mm-hmm. That in that between point, I guess you could say the gutter, Joe, um, you have the opportunity to argue and predict and and go through the process of trying to figure out what's going to happen or finding a deeper meaning in the things you've already read without knowing what's coming before. Mm. And it's hard to have that in a world where everything is sort of on demand and is already out and you could literally just binge the entire thing. I think this is a series that... It's both great because it, it really facilitates you zooming through it, like we talked about this before. But I think if I was going through this in the 10 to 20 page chapters that they had before, maybe I'd, I'd probably appreciate it a lot more. Hmm. And maybe I'd, it'd seem more mind-blowing if I was reading it in 82 and well. Well, like my, my seminal example of something like this is Watchmen. God, I knew you were going to fucking bring up Watchmen. Oh, of course I'm going to bring up Watchmen. God. It's my seminal example. Sitting, sitting here like waiting this. for it. No, uh, you know. no, Watchmen is like the Pink Floyd's The Wall for for American right. comic books, right? Absolutely. If you're serious about getting into the genre, then you're going to buy a copy of it. But the thing is right? that and if I think you... This, can you say the same thing about Akira? Oh, for, God, for yeah, manga? sure. Yeah. Yeah. But my, my point is that if you buy a copy of Watchmen today and you read it today, you're fundamentally having a different experience than you would have reading it in 
1985. Yeah, but I, I think that's an unfair standard to hold up to because that's literally everything that's ever been written. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. Absolutely not. It absolutely you is. You be more wrong. <laughs> it absolutely is. And fight. <laughs> you know, right? But fight. We've been very good on this because this is not anybody that's listens to our show. And this is a majority of our dynamic. But no, like seriously, I don't think – yeah, it was mind blowing eighty two in the same way that people reading Watchmen when it came out were like, "Holy shit!" But like now, you could sit somebody down with Watchmen that has been reading Image Comics for the last ten years, and they'd be like, "Who fucking cares?" Yeah, and that's that's my problem I, with it. It's I like, do think that Watchmen does hold up, but that's a different conversation. Well, yeah, and, I, and I'm, not, not, I'm not disparaging oh, Watchmen. Yeah, like yeah. I, I appreciate yeah. that without Watchmen, you don't have the Image Comics of the last ten years. But I think at the same time, the point that Tobias making is that things can't be ahead of their time forever because no, eventually yeah. it catches up with them. Right. And it's exactly. Like, and w- what I'm saying is, you know, we talk about Watchmen as the end of the Silver Age. And at the time that it was written, they were in the Silver Age. So their comparison isn't something like uh, Batman Year One or Crisis on Infinite Earths. Their comparison is whatever the hell was coming out from Marvel and DC in 1982 that we were just shitting on. And in that context, Watchmen is a wildly different work than it is reading it today in hindsight when the comics industry has spent 30 years catching up with it. Mm -hmm. In the same way, I think that the experience of reading Akira at the time that it was coming out, especially as an American, even reading it in the early 90s when it was being published by Marvel, is a fundamentally different experience than reading it today. I think you you can't capture it completely you can't go back to another time but i think there's ways to simulate it there was a um post i saw online like an article that was talking about the experience of taking a class that was the history of music and that if you put on some Jimi hendrix there's like wow that sounds really cool but it's not exactly mind-blowing and they said okay let's play some music that was coming out at the same time that Jimi hendrix was getting big and you listen to all that then Jimi hendrix is like a fucking brick through a window and you're like what the fuck is that (laughs) well and i think that's the the whole the entire question of and and I think the older I get and the more comics I read, the idea of does it hold up, right? It's like, I think we need to put uh, – that is a question that needs to be defined as to what does that mean? Because to me, it means did I enjoy this, right? Like what if I had read this in 82 and read it this week, would it have meant the same thing to me? Well, probably not. But would I have enjoyed it as much? Absolutely. Hmm. Like – like, I don't have that experience. Like, now, reading Watchmen for the last two or three times I've read it is a fucking chore. I would rather, like, clean my <laughs> oh, kitchen. wow. Oh, I would rather wow. clean my kitchen. And it's, but Dark Knight Returns mm. is, is the same thing because mm. I've read them so much. I'm starting to sweat like I've Tetsuo. Absor- <laughs> I've, I've absorbed them so much that yeah. I'm just, like, I'm not getting anything new out of this, right? Oh, wow. Like, this is not, it's not a, it's not a, a an experience that I enjoy it, right? It's like, so I, I think that, you can't like we were talking. Me and Tobias were talking about the Matrix the other day, and how going to see that movie was f- like mind blowing, especially if you were able to avoid spoilers and go see it without knowing what it was about. But like, would you have that same experience if you sat in the theater and watched it today? And does that mean it doesn't hold up if you don't? Yeah, mm-hmm. you you live in a world that it helped create now. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, big special effects movies of its type just didn't exist now. Now we live in Franchise City. 
Yeah. And everything has a hundred plus million dollar budget and everything was influenced by watch, not by, also by Watchmen, but by <laughs> the Matrix. Well, and now you have bullet time during soccer games. By yeah. Akira. And, and, and I would yeah. hate it just as much if they wanted to publish a series of before Akira prequel stories oh, oh god, characters. Oh, god. <laughs> we're not the, going talking about before Woo. watchmen at this point is dangerous because i am liable to just go off okay. i'm just gonna freak out the petty grenade is primed yeah, let's, right. let's steer clear <laughs> before watchmen. somebody's gonna jump on this i have been remarkably even keeled throughout this whole discussion and i am just itching oh I'm don't worry just... i'll give you an excuse later <laughs> so um i guess with that let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with high point low point Who here likes comic books? Who likes superheroes? Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s! That's what I thought. Hey there! I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks, and though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection, issue by issue, and in my own little way, try to answer the question, were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these books deserve another chance, and they're going to get it on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. And we're back on Radio vs. the Martians. We're talking about Katsuhiro Tomo's epic manga, Akira. And now it's time for the segment we like to call High Point, Low Point. We go from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the barrel. We, As always, we start low. We're doing at low point. Joe, what is the low point of Akira? Um, So I've been kind of racking my brain about this because my high point was readily apparent to me. But my low point was kind of less apparent. And I think for me the low point is... And I, I say this not as it's not because it's a bad thing. It's just because um, the kind of way things shakes out or shakes out for me is is the the film because mm. there's just mm. no there's so much information that is missing from it that kind of like I've I, now that I've read the manga I'm like oh my god I fucking understand but I've seen that goddamn movie so many times and I was like what. What 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 are you trying to tell me? So I I think that it's just I think it was a good endeavor, but I just feel like there was way too much information to kind of be stuffed into 2 hours. It's it's uh, to me like I think the movie as a standalone is fine, but the movie as an adaptation I think it suffers because the source material is so detailed. So and it's, it's like I said, it's not to say that the movie is bad. I just think that there needed to be more of it to properly tell the story. It does kind of make sense on that front. I think that the the movie in a lot of ways could remind me of the 1970s Lord of the Ring adaptation. Yeah. Where if you've read the books, those things make sense. But if you haven't, you're like, 
what the fuck? Why does he have a broken sword? Yeah. I, I get that. That This is kind of frustrating. And, I mean, how do you adapt? I think nowadays you wouldn't adapt it into a movie. I think it would probably just be a massive anime series. Well, well I think you could do it with ten episodes. Well, give, give it... The, the, I, I give it this much credit as, um, unlike other adaptations, sort of a page-to-screen adaptations... Osamo was the director, was the creator of both of them. Yeah, so in the same yeah. way, they are fundamentally the same characters. They're, they look the same. They, they, the world is realized the same. The characters look exactly the same, and they more or less act the same. Yeah, um, even though one is clearly an inferior telling of the of the same story. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 exactly where I'm coming from. Is I I will always love the movie. I think it was. I don't know that it was the first anime I watched, but it was the first one that kind of was floored me because I was like, what the fuck is happening? Also, boobs. I was like, boobs don't go in cartoons, do they? Have I been lied to my entire life? Um, but in, in true Japanese pervo fashion, it has to be a, a sexual violence. Yeah, right. Creepy. Like, it's creepy it's boobs. Like, what? It's definitely creepy boobs. And, reg- okay. and regardless of what Hulk Hogan tells you, I don't think you can rip a shirt like that in real life. <laughs> no, no, you can't. I actually have a friend who saw Hulk Hogan at the mall back in the 80s because he grew up in L.A. and he got one of those shirts. Or I guess he got a couple of them. Um, and yeah, he's like, yeah, just throws them away. They rip like wet tissue paper. <laughs> yeah, oh, they're man. thin and they're cut in the back. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Casey, like, he was really disappointed. <laughs> Low point. Uh, I think it kind of touched on it, but in thinking about this beforehand, it's kind of difficult. Like, how do you do a low point for Romeo and Juliet or Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, right? Or Citizen Kane? Like, it's something where it's a, it's a, an ex- exemplar exemplar of the whole genre. So my low point is before Citizen Kane. Yes, exactly right. I and I had so little experience with the with the the manga. Like I said, I the pacing to me, I am not sure if it is a if um it is a consequence of the serialized storytelling or it, if it's a consequence of the way that manga is paced for longer stories that I'm just not end up used to, but um the story can move at such an incredibly fast clip when it wants to, and there it's just seemed to drag at some points that started to take me out of the uh, the desire to want to read it. And I was like, "Well, that is that's a big problem with a story is if it's if you if it loses you and you start thinking, should I stop now? Um, but I just suspect that it's like maybe it's not possible to do pacing holistically over eight years of time when you're just pacing it out over ten pages at a time. So that's really the worst thing I can say for an otherwise superior piece of literature. So that's my low point. Uh, I'm going to agree with Casey because he stole my point and I don't oh. have time to think of another one. And but fight. I, <laughs> I absolutely agree. Like, I think the biggest flaw in this series, having read it a second time, is the pacing and the fact that the story is spread out over 2,000 pages. And I think realistically, you only need about 1,200 of those pages at most. I think you could easily lose about a third of this book if you were going to like take it as a whole piece unpublished as a as a creator and go, well, okay, now I'm going to edit it. And what am I going to take out? What am I going to leave in? How am I going to change things? And I think you could compress this story down a lot and it would be much stronger for it. So my low point was something really specific because I think like Casey, you said, you know, how do you find the low point of these great seminal works? And. I think there was only one thing that truly disappointed me reading Akira. And that is Kaneda's jacket. <laughs> uh, Kaneda's uh, jacket is one of the great iconic... P- 
pieces of science fiction clothing out there. It's this great, it's like a mix between like a space suit and like the Michael Jackson thriller jacket. Yeah. yeah. It's red and it has this giant Dr. Mario pill on the back <laughs> and it just looks so fucking awesome. And I, I got this really cool box set of Akira for Christmas with all the, the different volumes and this cool slipcase. And it comes with this badge, like an iron on badge, like a, like a, a patch. A patch, thank you. That <laughs> that has that logo on it. It has, you know, you know, good for health, bad for education, and that pill in the middle. So I'm like, oh God, this is great. I mean, it's one of the big iconic logos of Akira. So I'm reading it and I'm like, well, where's the jacket? Where's and I'm That's like totally fair. And I'm like, where is this jacket? And I'm like, it's definitely coming up. It's definitely coming up. It's too big of a memory that I have of this story. And I hadn't read Akira um since 2002 when I got the Dark Horse volumes and it's been on my bookshelf ever since and I love it to death and I've always wanted to revisit it so this is like 20 years difference in sort of my my memory here it's been god like 16 18 years since I've read these books and I'm like okay where's that jacket where's that jacket then uh Kaneda gets sent into the the you know, 2001 Space Odyssey dimension for most of volume four. And he comes back and there's that scene where he's like bullying Joker. He's like, give me new clothes, give me new clothes. And I'm like, oh God, here it comes. Here comes that fucking jacket. And he wears this really cool like red jumpsuit. And I'm like, oh, where the fuck is the jacket? <laughs> and I, and I know this sounds like nitpicking, but this is literally the most disappointing thing I could find. And it's really not that bad. <laughs> no, that's totally fair. I and, did have the same thought. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, what, what the jacket? And everyone cosplays as this character. They wear this jacket, and it really just is in the movie. So I don't know. Although I did love when uh, Kay gets new clothes at Lady Miyaku's, and she's got those like leather pants with the high boots. Oh yeah, that was a win in my book. <laughs> Kay has some pretty cool outfits in this book. Uh, she has that cool almost chef's uniform that she wears at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. So um, let's get into high point. We've gone low. Let's go high. As we say, drag ourselves out of the gutter, but we're going to stay in the gutter, I think, with you two. <laughs> there, There's yeah. been lots of mentions of the gutter on this so yeah. far. And this is a book with a lot of gutters yeah, in it. That's true. It's gutters and gutters. The view from the gutters is pretty nice. You can <laughs> yeah. see a lot of interesting things that's from true. there. That's true. That's true. So uh, let's go with you, Casey. What is the high point of Akira? Mine is Neo Tokyo. Uh, as a setting, and I fully admit that I really know next to nothing about art except for what you know what gives me a reaction. But the lines and the shapes of Neo Tokyo, especially as the as the sort of the post destruction version of the city, are just amazing. Um, the impossibly tall skyscrapers, the clutter of rubble in the ruins, and they're just the thousands and thousands of panels that Otomo had to painstakingly fill in to visualize the setting and uh, on our batman panel that joe was on we talked about how gotham city was a character that allows batman to be himself the same is true here neo tokyo is like that chaos of neo tokyo uh, that upheaval of it being destroyed allows to have the backdrop of this such in this insane chaotic violent world um the city is a roiling mass of people cars concrete neon and then destruction and it's just that is that's the through line for the entire story so without neo tokyo this would be a this would be just a a facile you know story it would be thin it would be very very thin that's so neo tokyo is my high point that's that's entirely fair yeah i i I kind of i love neo tokyo and i think the thing i really love in this book is that there are parts of this world that almost look like star trek or star wars 
where you see them walking across these like bridges between skyscrapers that have like gardens and fountains on them and it looks amazing. And then there's bits that look like they're already in the post-apocalypse, like the bowling alley that the clown gang is based out of. And it just looks like they're just parts of the city that people just gave up on policing a long time ago. And the fact that there's sort of that struggle between these two things, I guess it kind of adds to the idea that this is a city that's literally built on all these graves. And that it's about this thing coming up out of the ground and breaking it again. Like their, their past is coming back. I fucking love that. So, Tobiah? Low point or high point? High point, high point. I'm Ooh. I'm gonna go in a little bit of an odd direction with this, so I hope you'll bear with me because I got to do the thing that I do. So you're gonna know. yell at Joe? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna poke Joe until he screams in a good way. <laughs> no, so <laughs> oh my! <laughs> in 1940, there was a serialized novel that was released. It came out as a whole piece, and I want to say 46. Uh, called Slan by A.E. Van Vogt that is like the the source material for both Akira and X-Men, along with a, a lot of other things that came after it. Um, and it's something I would really recommend people check out because it's an important antecedent to a lot of modern pop culture that, that kind of exists in this sphere. Uh, and very, very briefly, it is uh, about a future in which there is a race of mutants called Slans that have psychic powers. They're strong. They're, they can go into healing trances. They don't get tired in the way that people do. They're basically the, the predecessor of the mutants from the X-Men and also in many ways the Esper children from Akira. And so I I think it's really interesting that you you kind of have this predecessor work that inspired these two very disparate things, X-Men and Akira, and that then over time, Akira has fed back into Western comic books, in particular things like the X-Men through Rob Liefeld, who just wholesale ripped off a ton of manga uh, for his 90s X-Men, X-Force, his work there. Um, and I just think it's really interesting the way that these things kind of separate and come back together, that you have, you know, these works of the 1940s that experienced works or influenced works of the 1960s and the 1980s. And then that those things then fed back into each other and combined in this really interesting way. And I think it's really great to go back and explore those inspiring works in the way that we're exploring Akira and looking at the way that it inspired a lot of modern comic books. And so that's, that's kind of my high point is just looking at the way that this was both influenced by the things that came before it and influencing the things that came after it, because it is so influential and so groundbreaking. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, And Joe, I don't think it's going to come as a surprise to anybody that my favorite thing, my high point, is all the fucking yelling that people are doing in this <laughs> book. I just want a compilation of every, Kaneda! Tetsuo! Kay! It's just like, I love this. I just imagine this world where everybody, nobody talks. Everybody is just screaming all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, that is my world. I finally found it. <laughs> that's, that's, those people understand me. Oh. I just, I was like, I, I really, I think it's, I think it's 
done really well because it's it's funny to me, but it's also like, well, of course they are, right? They're like they're like gophers sticking their heads up over the rubble. Tetsuo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's not here. We're gonna go somewhere else. <laughs> it's, it's like radar or something. It's great. I I love it. I just love how like and Kaneda wins that by like more people want Kaneda to be around than anybody else. Like, he is the one that everybody is screaming for. It's but great. I feel like it's so much more satisfying to scream, Tetsuo! I know, right? And I'm kind of <laughs> saying, there is no, at no point in this book do they have the the famous scene from the anime where it's they scream at each other. Yeah. yeah. There's never there's never the, the back and forth, which kind of disappointed me because I kept saying, this is going to be the one. This is going to be the one. <laughs> it's your and jacket. It was, it was my, yeah, it's exactly, it's my jacket. <laughs> but... Yeah, I, it was, but I, I, I was made up for it because, like, nobody is scr- yelling for Kay in the in the anime, and she gets a lot. She gets a lot of screaming too. So this book never lets you forget character names. Yeah, no, it absolutely doesn't. <laughs> it yeah, absolutely doesn't. Which early on was difficult for me because, uh, because this is a con- total conceit of um, American uh, with a Japanese comic book. Is at first I had difficulty telling the characters apart, but. You stick with it. They tell the names enough. They give those little distinctive haircuts for them. And then eventually, ex- with the exception of some people in sort of the Great Tokyo Empire, I'm like, who the fuck are these people? Yeah, There's usually yeah. groups of... But the main characters, I, I know who they are. The important like, ones, Lots of names, yeah. and I finally got them all. And they keep yelling them at each other, yes. just in case you don't know. And you're like, yep. oh, that's Tetsuo. Yeah. <laughs> that's that squirrely dude with the, that's like destroying everything with his crazy brain. So uh, my high point is Otomo's artwork. Uh, we mm. talked a bit about this before, but the guy does not cut corners. That th- this is an achievement, this book. And I look at this and I couldn't imagine any artist, like a professional artist, not looking at this and not being humbled by it. Where you're just like, man, why can't I... I shouldn't try to make a living at this <laughs> and just giving up. But I think it actually had the opposite effect, which is, again, the best thing, which is that people go like, holy shit, I want to draw comics if this is what comics is. But um, the buildings aren't just these, you know, indescript gray boxes. I mean, there's a life to it. It feels like, I don't know if he went to school for architecture, but it looks like he did. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, these are all buildings that make sense. And when they break, you can tell they're parts of things. Um, when people have vehicles and then you see other vehicles in the post-apocalypse that are clearly made from parts of those vehicles that you have like Joker riding around on a repurposed version of those flying platforms. And Canada has got this, um, like thing that's built out of a robot, but it has a minigun attached to it now. <laughs> and I mean, just little things like that, like all the pieces are there and it isn't like, Oh, I'm just making up a new thing. It's like, he's repurposing it. And he's remembering what that thing is, but it's distinct enough in both of those forms that you notice it. And even the characters, like you mentioned, have that, they have that distinctness that I guess the the big test of any sort of drawing of characters is, can you put them in a silhouette and you recognize Mm. them? Yeah. And I can, I know what kind of it looks like because I mean, there's a body language that people have aside from the way they look. There's like an immature way that he stands where he look he acts like a child a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I would recognize Joker or Lady Miyako or Kay or Tetsuo 
or that that asshole with the tie. I mean, even Kaisuke, <laughs> who's like a minor character, he kind of reminds me of Riff Rack from the Cadillac Cats. <laughs> um, he's just that scrappy little guy with a tie. What's the What's the one psychic kid who always sits in the chair and wears a little suit? Is it? Mas- oh, Masaru. Masaru. Yeah, like I would recognize him with his cool chair, or I'd recognize the colonel, and it's like that is that is a talent because one of the things that you know, superhero comics have is everyone's wearing a costume that frequently has a logo. Then you're like, okay, that's Hawkeye, the guy in the purple. Oh, that's, you know, Miss Marvel over there. You know, she's wearing the, the lightning bolt. It's like, I recognize all these people. Um, when you're drawing a bunch of people who are often just wearing regular clothes that have sort of a future bent that in a cast of thousands, that's a talent. Mm-hmm. And there's something about it where he doesn't skimp on crowd scenes even. Yeah. That yeah. you'll see everyone in this group reacting to this thing differently. There's different body types. There's different faces, um, different body language. And it's like everything feels like a lived-in world. And, like, there's this, like, homeless junkie guy that hangs out in front of the, the reform school that they all go to in the beginning. There's several scenes where they, like, burst out of there on their motorcycles down the stairs and scare the shit out of this guy who's always standing there. That's a detail, putting him there, even though he's not really a character per se, but he's part of that world. And there's a consistency in it, and oh my god, I mean, this is a this is a book that that does a lot of things right, but there's one thing, you know, you say like, what is the one thing this artist does that they do better than anybody? And at first I was like, okay, with Atoma, that's explosions, but I was like, no, no, it's not even rubble, it's not explosions, it's not the destruction of cities. It's sweaty people. <laughs> and the thing that, that, that Otomo does There are better, lots of sweaty faces in this there, book. There is so much sweat. This is, this is like, like, a, uh, like a 1970s prison movie. The amount of sweat <laughs> oh, that's yeah, in this no, movie. Oh, yeah, no, no. Everybody's very sweaty. And not only... It's not like the, the kind of like delightfully, you know, like, I look like a badass sweaty, like when like Triple H walks to the ring and he's been sprayed down, and you're like, oh, that's a sweaty guy. Like, this is the sort of sweat that it looks like your life is pouring out of you. So when Mr. Nezu is sweating, it looks like that's his life. It's flop sweat. It's flop sweat. Where it looks like this guy is dying when he's trying to run away. It looks like you can, and you just look at him, you can feel your own lungs burning. And it's like Tetsuo, the sweatiest guy in this entire book. There are times it looks like he's going to fucking die and it hurts watching him. You're just like, oh God, oh God, where you just feel, it doesn't like refreshing sweating. This is the kind of thing where you just, you feel hot and you feel sticky and you feel pain. And I'm just like, holy shit, dude. That's my high point. (laughs) That's the world he creates in sweaty people. Oh, fuck. Oh man, <laughs> the, the world of sweat, a whole world of sweaty people for you to enjoy. Yeah, yeah the internet like is full of that. Needs to be a ride at Disneyland. <laughs> oh yeah, not until they they lower their uh, parental warnings on things. <laughs> also, like random Heathcliff reference, which was a cartoon that up until a few weeks ago, I was not sure that even existed or that anybody else had seen until a friend of mine name checked it and i was like oh my god that was actually real it's not some kind of wait, weird wait wait implanted memory that i have in the heathcliff, heathcliff no one should terrorize the, the neighborhood yep. Yep. yeah i got it yeah yep. it was it was real you didn't make and it up joe the cadillac cats were like the last oh. half of every episode they were the good was, part yes. of every episode so yeah. that, that aside we just want to say thank you for for, <laughs> for for being a part of radio versus the martians and folks 
if even part of this sounds interesting, even if it doesn't sound like your type of story, please, please go read Akira. Even if you want to just flip through the art and be blown the fuck away. If you want to or, get into, if you're looking for an entry into manga, I think this is, this is good. The lines are clean. It's easily readable and it will allow you to kind of get into some of the. What I would recommend is just going and watching like the first 15 minutes of the, <laughs> like just the first opening scene where they're riding the motorcycles through Neo Tokyo. Uh, watch that part of the anime stop it go and read the manga and then come back yeah. and finish watching the anime that's a good reputation so with that i just want to say thank you tobiah for joining us tobiah pansion from view from the gutters Ooh, as always thank you for having me and mr joe Preddy. yeah thank you it was good we haven't done this in a while views has been on hiatus although that might be changing Bring it back. Um, but yeah, it's always nice. It's awesome. always nice to sit down at the mic with you guys. Joe, and, I'm bringing View from the Gutters back. Yay! Yes! Exclusive. Also, you're fired. Oh. <laughs> also, View from the Gutters is canceled again. <laughs> God damn it. Oh. Uh, back and, to cookie jail. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Mr. Casey Doran. Mark Gallen! <laughs> Casey Doran! Oh. <laughs> uh. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thank you, everybody. And we also want to send a special thank you out to our episode sponsors with our brand new tier, Margaret King and Larry Brunswick. Thank you so much. And if you folks want to become episode sponsors, please check us out on patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or radio versus the Martians.com. We will catch you all next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. That hurt. Kanida, what are you doing in here? Tatsu! You okay? I'm here for the rescue! Hurry up! What are you, stupid? If we don't get out of here, those... <gasps> there he is! Capture him! You keep away! <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot you were there. There, do you see, Kaneda? I won't be needing you to come to the rescue ever again, okay? From now on, I'll be in charge of the heroics. So if you need any saving, just ask Connie. Damn it, Tetsuo! Who the hell do you think you're talking to, you moron? Ha! You don't like what you're hearing, do ya? Makes you angry? So what are you gonna do now? Well, Kaneda, what are you gonna do now? <laughs> <laughs>